you are uh, a dear friend of my brother and uh, that's how we met uh, many years ago when he relocated and uh, I just wanted to say that you and I um, go way back but the funny part is you know I'm in my uh, third year here with the podcast and over almost 300 recorded episodes you are one of the top 10 people that I wanted to have on from day one um, because of the work that you do and you know you are a world-renowned uh, fine artist film director intellectual in my book um, you're one of the most humble Vietnamese people that I've that I've known and with the accomplishment accomplishments that you've had so I am excited to sit here and finally have a conversation with you. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. It's been uh, so long since we've been able to kind of connect our schedules. Um, a lot of that is on me. Um, but I'm also thankful to uh, George Wins for like kind of pushing us to get this to happen. Um, yeah, sh shout out to George. Shout out to George. But you know what I've learned about um, doing this podcast and just being in life and in general and, and art and the path of writing or film directing or music is that inevitably if you wait and you do the work, you, as we as artists, we get better at what we do and it, things get richer. And so that sort of the timeline, there's no need to really push, right? If you think about it, we just, our job is just to do the work and really just be in the moment and then these things like my 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 desire to sit with you in conversation will appear when the right time and you know with your exhibit in, in New York coming up I think this is the perfect time to actually sit and, and do this interview yeah no I, I I'm a firm believer in um, things uh, happening organically and as time um, time will will in time everything will come together yeah you've had a long history uh in vietnam now and you've spent nearly your whole obviously your whole youth in in the u.s you uh came to vietnam you came from vietnam in 1979 with your parents but you've spent a long time now in vietnam in the like my brother uh what has inspired you to stay in vietnam and live in vietnam and create uh, really a whole journey of, of art in Vietnam. Excuse me. Um, yeah, that's a, it's a, that's a long story. I've been in Vietnam now for almost 20 years. I, I think got there in 2004. Um, it's now 2023. 20, yeah, so 20 years, almost 20 years. Yeah. My brother got there that year too, 2004. Yeah, I think I beat your brother by a few months. Two months, um, that's right. And your brother and I were roommates for for a little bit. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, I miss him. Um, I haven't hung out with Tom in a lot in a while too. Um, yeah, I I I knew that I wanted to finish graduate school, get my MFA, and then um, I wanted to be back uh, and spend some time with my grandmother, um, an amazing woman. She just passed last year at the age of 102. Wow. Um, I'm from, sorry to hear that. Yeah, no, she lived a great life um, and she inspired a lot of people and she helped a lot of people. And um, yeah, I grew up hearing these amazing stories about her. Um, she's a writer, she's a poet, 
Um, she was editor of uh, a newspaper um, during the war and, you know, just very kind of centered and compassionate, um, very eloquent, articulate with her words, um, very soft-spoken, but very powerful in, in, in how she spoke and what she spoke to. Um, and I only got to meet her once when she came over um, when I was 12 years old. Uh, to um, bring my grandfather over to the U.S. for some some surgeries that he had, um, and he was she was only there for a few months. She lived with us for a few months, and it was an amazing time. She taught me how to read and write in Vietnamese in 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 those few months. Um, so, in my very large extended family, she's kind of like the only one that kind of followed her dreams. You know, she was. Mm a poet at, at a very young age. And, and at that time, in like, you know, the early 1900s, it, it's, it was very difficult for young women to kind of publish their writing. Um, and uh, she she was able to do so. So I wanted to connect with her. Um, I thought I was going to do a documentary on her. Um, I was fresh out of uh, art school with a focus on film. And I thought, okay, this will be a great excuse to kind of be in Vietnam, to be with her and and to make a film about her. Um, I shot a lot of footage, but I never got to edit the, <laughs> edit a film. Um, I think I was just enamored, you know, to be with her and to be in her presence that I never got the, the kind of space to kind of s settle down and sit down and edit the, edit the footage. Um, but hopefully, uh, eventually one day I'll, I'll be able to do that. Timing is everything, though, right? Timing is everything. Yeah, timing. Yeah. I'm sure when the time is right, uh, you'll have enough um, of that sort of like the reasons to put it together. Yeah, that emotional space. Yeah. Now, in her 102 years, I'm sure she's seen and lived through a lot of different uh, changes. But what do you think sort of kept her going in that way, that independent spirit, what inspired her to live the life that she did? I mean, she was very passionate about writing. She was writing every day. Um, she was writing and reading every day. So every day I would see her, you know, sit at her desk for at least an hour or two, just, just writing, just writing poetry. And I think it was that, you know, for her, it was that, that, that love for poetry, that, that, yearning to find poetry in life that that kept her going um and i think good genetics as well yeah <laughs> <laughs> she looked very young like she you know she was she kept yeah she was kept well her her youth and, and do you think with all of the sort of the change of hands in the government and and the powers that she had to kind of contain her voice and not really be too loud or kind of know the rules to play by because I, I i just imagine that anyone who is that vocal or that in their mind thinking and writing all the time and wanting to express is going to find it hard to live in different sort of situations that we had in vietnam um you know there's a lot of stories about my grandmother um having being called for re-education camp mm. um and then you know i'm going to butcher the story because I've, I've 
this is a story I've heard maybe like three or four times, but it's it's been a, it's been a while. Um, she had to get in front of a large audience of officials to uh, kind of uh, defend her case, and supposedly she was able to speak her mind about what was happening uh, post war. Wow, and that's the thing. Like she's got this eloquence about her that enabled her to kind of be very real, be critical, and be heard, you know, even though it was something that I'm sure the the officials and the 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 the, the policing bodies of that time did not want to hear. They sat and they heard and they listened. And she wasn't um she was uh alleviated from going into re-education camp they they didn't they let her they let her go that probably speaks to an enormous amount of of um balance and sort of like fair thinking that she probably has in a critical uh, way of of viewing the world that makes anybody going after her probably understand that there's this sense of justice that's inside of her well, that and I also think delivery is everything, mm. right? That's that's form, right? Um, you know, we often I've taught art um, a few years uh, over the past, you know, a couple of decades, and we we often think about form and content. So, in in terms of content, in regards to my grandmother, that was there, the form, the in which she delivered that content was something that um, was convincing enough and eloquent enough, possibly poetic enough mm -hmm. that she was able to deliver the content that she wanted to deliver to this audience that was not probably um, initially ready to accept it. And I think, you know, that's something I, I kind of aspire to do, right, as, as an artist, as um, a filmmaker, um, as a writer, is to figure out that delivery, how to be poetic and eloquent um, and still kind of, you know, uncover the kind of stories that I want to uncover. You know, I, I can't really claim to know you well, but 20 years ago we we met and we've met throughout the years and and you know you know i read your the stuff that is written about you but just that story about your grandmother for me uh is new is new news for me and hearing the portrayal of how eloquent and the the fine uh the fine walk that she she did to deliver and delivery is the the sort of really the the beauty of 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 how she's gotten her thoughts across n now makes me understand who you are and i think the beauty of these sort of long form podcasts allows us to to hear that sort of that messaging and it's like wow that, that all makes sense now uh from the perspective the vantage point that i've had you know just watching you throughout your career and understanding your 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 grandmother's life yeah if i can only reach like become 10% of what wow. she was, I would be, I would be a happy person. <laughs> wow. And, you know, uh, 
a, a, a number that sticks in my head is you said when you were 12. So that means that she came to the U.S. shortly in the 90s, right? Yeah, in the early, very early in 90s. Early 90s. 80s, how did, 80s. How was that possible when nobody was leaving the country unless you were on some special program or you, you escaped by boat? How do you come into this country and then get back out in the 90s? You know, that's a question that I've, I've been meaning to bring up to my um, aunts and uncles. I don't know how that happened. It was probably early 90s. Um, we were in Dallas still. I remember, um, I think I had just finished sixth grade or like maybe seventh grade. Um, Cause we moved to LA in 1991, right before the Rodney King incident. So um, yeah, it was late eighties. I don't, that's something I, I will have to kind of investigate for sure. Yeah. Cause that's uh, not unheard of. I've in all my life, I've never heard of anybody coming, um, coming and going that freely, especially before 1996. Maybe yeah. after 96, you know, with uh, Clinton and his initiatives on, on bringing all the uh, political prisoners out of Vietnam. But, uh, you know, what reason did she have this woman, your grandmother, have to just kind of like leave the country and come back in? Unless she was coming out from Switzerland or from Europe, uh, you know, she was living in another country. And, you know, but if she was leaving from Vietnam, that's a very, very special circumstance. And, you know, I, I really wonder how that happened. Yeah, now, yeah, I'm very curious as well. Yeah. I'll let you know. I'll write some comments <laughs> in there. <laughs> All right. So what's the hardest part about the actual making of art? Um, you know, in my mind, there's like the figuring out of the context and the design of it. And then there's the other part of actually making the art to perhaps fit into the contextual side of what you think that you want to express. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of challenges in being a visual artist, I, I would say. Um, there's so many challenges. It's a struggle. I mean, it's, it's a struggle, Ken, for, for any young artist out there, not to kind of, um, discourage any young artist. I, I totally encourage artists, but you have to be ready for, um, to be kind of, tenacious in your in your in your practice um for me one of the hardest parts is that you know you're never you never get a sense of completion mm. you know, i never feel like anything is really complete anything's really finished anything's really done um but because the way of the world we have to kind of wrap things up and, and present them um in in timely manners right um the other part is that you know, one of, no one really teaches a, an artist how to kind of traverse the world, the financial world of it. You know, I, and I think that's a, a, a big reason why, why young visual artists kind of struggle because we don't know how to handle it. We don't know how, like, how to manage our money. Uh, we don't know how to get our, our work seen and sold. Um, so it, it's it's that that for me was was one of the biggest challenges that I faced. Um, lucky for me that I initially, in my naive kind of 
young mental space that I was in, I didn't really care about the commercial world, the commercial art world. So hence I packed up, moved to Vietnam. Um, and in working in Vietnam, um, I was able to kind of figure out a lot of things in my own kind of, you know, in my own practice. And living in Vietnam enabled me to kind of do the experimental work that I was doing without having to think about um, making a living. If I was doing that in the U.S., I, I, I would not have survived. I would not have been able to do the things that I was doing for as long as I did them. When you think about that sort of disparity of ability because of money, you think that there are all of these voices, potential voices in the U.S., that want to speak out and 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 do their art and practice. And they don't get a shot of that because of money, financial restrictions uh, being in, in, in the U.S. But at the same time, there are people in Vietnam who are born into poor families and poverty who have artistic souls and, and, and want to express. But because of their sort of positioning in society, they have to go get a factory job so being an artist is a very tough thing wherever you are because the kind of conditions have to be right you know you come from the united states you're educated in the united states you went to one of the best art schools in the world then got to go back to vietnam and and basically and you know this speaks to this enormous amount of i i, I think about the world and how many more artists there could have been had the kind of money aligns across the board for everybody, but that's not the case. How did you sort of navigate the financial side of, of, of your art being financed and, and being bought and sold? How does that kind of like come together for you? Um, actually, I didn't really start selling art work um until very recently um what happened in my particular line of kind of development was that i was doing some commercial work in in the film industry not in the film industry but in the commercial industry um and uh i i started a a group I co-founded a, a group called the Propeller Group. Um, and the Propeller Group operated by day as, as a film production studio, as an advertising company, as, 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 a, as a commercial entity, if you will. Um, but the Propeller Group by night operated as an art collective mm. that looked at what we were doing during the day um, and looking critically at 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 that whole kind of intersection of of advertising, commerce, capital, propaganda, and communism, um, it was at a very interesting time in the development of Vietnam. This is like you know mid two thousand. Um, the trade embargo was lifted in ninety seven, I think. Yeah, you know, as soon as the trade embargo was lifted. Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, and all those big conglomerates are there to like, you know, develop a new market, to sell products, 
right? It was a burgeoning market. But how do you sell sugar water? You create a need for sugar water. And so a few years later, I, I think almost immediately, um, months later, all the big advertising companies flooded into Vietnam. And I think the government understood how lucrative this could be. Um, and they gave advertising firms, you know, special kind of privileges, you know. Um, in 2005, I started seeing graffiti for the very first time on the streets. And being a graffiti artist in LA, in my youth, I took notice of that immediately. And what struck me was that, you know, this is a country just kind of just opened, right? We were, we were a few years into it. Old, really old style communist propaganda was there very, it was ubiquitous in the landscape. And then right next to it was super slick, like, you know, capitalist advertising. Um, and hardly any public art that wasn't government commissioned, right? Um, but then suddenly you see these graffiti tags. It's like personal marketing in the public space. And I found that completely like fascinating um, and started to kind of follow up on it, you know, started to uh, ask around to see who these young graffiti artists were. Did a short documentary on it and, uh, you know, collaborated with the young graffiti artists to make some paintings, do some, you know, contemporary conceptual uh, artwork and found out also during the filming process that it was very difficult to film in public without permission, even though our camera was just like a Sony, I don't know, Sony HDV or something. I can't even remember what it was called. Um, but we almost had our you know stuff confiscated several times. And then we realized, okay, how do we kind of work this system? So we registered as an advertising company. Oh. Because as an advertising company, you can work in public space. You can rent out public billboards. You can, you know, you can get the licensing to to do big events and stuff and so on and so forth. Um, so what so that's that was the birth of the propeller group. Um it was this kind of exploring this niche, this 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 space between, you know, the communism and the capitalism that was kind of being integrated um, at that time. You you know, uh, the tightness of these governments or these regimes that are just coming out of sort of uh, this oppressive space and the growth of uh, the openness of, of, of Vietnam in the early days, like right after 97, has so much beauty to it when I hear it from an artist's perspective, because you get the history, you get the context, you get the meaning, you get all of the beauty that comes out of like being oppressed and controlled and the little kind of loopholes that the government kind of maybe didn't see, you know, at the top. And, you know, they have to grant Pepsi or these sugar water companies to, to have their space. So, so, the, the economy can thrive. And then people like you see it from a completely different angle and, and make art. And that's such a beautiful thing, Tuan. 
like uh, I think you know it's just out of like really an urge to understand yeah. you know what's happening uh in the world around us and and how we're relating to each other you know and how we relate to um you know the bigger bodies the governmental bodies the different institutions um and and history you know like we're all part of that history uh, one thing about graffiti as it relates to los angeles the city that we our beloved city of la and the graffiti artists of saigon or hanoi uh it's <laughs> very interesting because i've met a few of those graffiti artists uh working with Stefan Gager on um, Saigon Electric and 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 B-Boys and and street culture hip hop culture in Vietnam the the very interesting thing is when and and I'm making a, a very general assumption but it's a funny thing um when you meet graffiti artists in LA uh there are some very eloquent and very well spoken uh, artists that you know at the upper levels that they can explain the context of what they're doing but for the most part, you know, a lot of these kids are gang affiliated and they're really just tagging their neighborhood and marking up and, you know, doing their art to let people know that this signifies my territory. And they're very um, they could be very violent and they could be very, uh, you know, hard, hard, hardened people. But when you run into sort of like uh, a graffiti artist in Vietnam, in my experience, uh, they're very soft spoken um, they're very nice and you know this whole uh way of speaking like an an m and you know the hierarchical it all locks into place and they're very sweet and i find it to be sometimes just so uh amazing that they're just so soft and and well spoken i mean is that your uh, uh experience or is it different um i don't want to push any stereotypes but i'll i'll tell you the story i met you know i met this kid um his he introduced himself to me and as soon as he came up he was um he was kind of like the louder um personality in, in the group um his name was wowie um who i met when he was 17 or 18 and kind of i've been working with for a very long time um i was probably one of his first employers gave him a job as an assistant just because he needed to work. And now he's become one of the, you know, most well-known rappers in Vietnam. But back then he was, he was, he had an, he had a real edge. Like he had a, a chip on his shoulder. Um, and, you know, he was getting into large group fights and he's oh, had wow. been beat up and he had been beat other people up. And so, um, you know, I think it's, it's a spectrum, right? Um, there's some graffiti artists in in the U.S. that are extremely nice, extremely humble, and very, very skilled and talented in what they do. So, um, yeah. Thank you for I, I for it, breaking that stereotype because yeah, 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 yeah. I, you know, and that's a that's a problem that I think that somebody like me, you know, we live with. I live with it. I live with these stereotypes, you know, of these hardened criminals and hardened you know uh graffiti people that are in gangs here in in la but you're right at 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 the higher levels of art anywhere there's people who can explain 
exactly what they're trying to to create. And 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 I'm sure in Vietnam the opposite's true too. There's there's also you know, and it's amazing that this story that you talk about Wowie because Wowie's been on on the um, on our podcast too uh, in the early days. And Has he? Yeah. He's a huge rapper uh, in Vietnam, one of the the leading, uh, most well-known rappers uh, of his time and continues to be on, you know, these shows like Rap Viet and stuff like that. And and I understand that you did an art show with him uh, last year, correct? Yeah, you know, it was during the pandemic. We we had collaborated on some artworks way back when, when he was, um, you know, working with us at the Propeller Group in like 2000. 7 2008 uh we we did some work together with um with another friend named alan hayslip do you know alan has he been on your podcast alan hayslip lately that's lately's son right yeah 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 he's a he's a music producer um he was producing a lot of hip-hop um before he was he came to vietnam and he worked with the propeller group for a while and he was you know that was like Wowie's kind of introduction to hip hop. Wow. Um, yeah, it's funny, and I tell the story like Wowie was a graffiti was a graffiti artist. He, um, the way he spoke and with that kind of edge, I was like Wowie. Have you ever thought about being a rapper? No way. And, yeah, yeah. And then we started connecting him, and he was he got into it, and then, you know, the first work that we did in two thousand eight was kind of like based on a lot of the research that we were doing together into hip-hop um so so yeah but where was i i think i lost my train of thought um yeah so we did a so we 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 got together again during the pandemic um and made some more work to kind of uh as a as a way of reconnecting and re kindling our kind of collaborative um uh motivations uh in 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 regards to looking at art again so we made a whole series of of works and showed it at a at a gallery in in saigon called gallery quinn yeah but it was really a continuation of of what we started in 2008 that's what i'm that's the thing about artists. I mean, some artists have multiple mediums, right? They, they, whether it's uh, fine art or, or rap or music, uh, this pebble that's in our shoe, <laughs> that's bothering us, that chip on your shoulder or whatever it is that's creating the oyster uh, can manifest itself in so many different forms. But at the end of the day, you have to have that little pebble that's bothering you. Right. You have to have that thing that's stirring inside of you that you have to get out. What do you think that is for you? Where where do you think that comes? Um it's a good question, Ken. I I think that as with most of us who were born in Vietnam or you know who who were children of immigrants and refugees. I think that is definitely one of the the kind of the I don't know what to how to what to call it. I don't know quite yet how to speak of it, but I think, you know, looking at that history is is something that I've I've been obsessed about 
Um, I think there's something about trauma in there somewhere, trying to kind of get to the to the core of that trauma. Um, yeah, and I think there's multiple layers of that trauma, right? There's that that historical trauma. There's that trauma from the confusion of of being so young and being a refugee and being an immigrant. Um, the trauma of having to figure out how to assimilate into a, to a society that's at that time was rather vicious, you know, and unaccepting. Um, you know, I think that's it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and 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 a lot of my recent work is 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 looking at those kind of histories and looking at you know what it means to to figure out how to heal ourselves, you know, like from that historical trauma. Does it uh, ever cross your mind that when your children look up at you and they see the, the work of their, I think it's great grandmother and you and the expression that you all put out and they basically have, well, they probably <clears throat> have nothing at that level to, to kind of read and write and talk about. Right. And then they find themselves in um, a job like a business job, or they they're an entrepreneur, or they have something that doesn't really stir their soul. How do you feel about that? About perhaps your children taking? Do you ever think about that? Like they take a path where it's like you know they can go out and and really destroy the world with more plastic products that they create or you know what I mean <laughs> do you ever is this ever cross your mind that we have these uh chips on our shoulder and I do you know I have the very thing that you talked about is the shame the vicious world that we grew up in in the, the 80s and the 90s in the U.S. is sort of what drives the work that I do and I look at my kids I'm like they live in the Garden of Eden right now they live in a, a, a really beautiful world that accepts who they are and you know I'm, I'm sure they're gonna have their own humanly struggles but do you ever look at your kid and go, man, you're probably never going to have that sort of like chip on your shoulder and the work that you do might be just glorious in its own way, but definitely not with the struggles that we had. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, <laughs> I could really use Current. <laughs> I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Well, I hope they don't. Um, if I can, in my power, if I can help them grow up without a chip on their shoulder, I would consider myself a successful parent. Um, wow. <laughs> I don't want them to have a chip on their shoulder. I don't want them to kind of experience the traumas that we experienced. Um, but I know that's not going to be possible, right? To be a human being in this world is to be... Um, an entity that goes and through and experiences life and life is a series of traumas. Um, but that being said, I also think that we, as parents, educate our children 
right? We protect them, but then we educate them as well so that they can understand that what they need to do as they move through this world is to also protect and educate other people um, to, to protect the world, to protect um, their friends and families, and just to, you know, learn uh, to be compassionate beings, right? Um, and I think that's, that's, that's on us. That's, that's part of the education that we have to kind of give to them. Oh, makes sense. The Unburied Sounds of a Troubled Horizon. That's the title of your, your shirt, your short film um, that's debuting at the museum um, in New York, the new museum in New York. Uh, congratulations on that. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, the exhibit? Can you tell me how it came about? Yeah, so that's my most recent film. I've actually made a new work for the exhibition at the new museum. It opens June 29th um, in a few days, in about a week. I'm not sure when the podcast is, is going to um, air, but um, and it, the exhibition will be on until September 17th, I think. So if any of your audience members, you know, the listeners out there get a chance to be in New York, please come through and, and, and see the exhibition. Um, it would mean a lot to me. Um, but the exhibition is actually a culmination of three projects um, of which the unburied sounds of a troubled horizon is, is, is only one. Um, there's another four channel video installation called the specter of ancestors becoming that will be shown there. And that'll be the first time it's shown on the East coast. It's had its run in Europe and, you know, it was shown at the uh, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art in 2019, but this will be the first time in New York that it's being shown. And it's a, it's a, it's a work that's very dear to me because it was um, made in collaboration with the Vietnamese community in Dakar, Senegal. Um, I spent a lot of time in Senegal, um, kind of looking at the history of this very particular migration of Vietnamese women and children from Indochine, from 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 Vietnam to West Africa. Wow, that's wait. At the the reason you just said Indochine in in air quotes, or that that means that it had to have probably happened in a specific period of Vietnamese history in relation to France. Uh, right. I, it, that's what it sounds like to me. And what's the historical sort of backdrop of, of women and children growing up in Senegal uh, under French rule? I mean, how, can you explain more about that? Yeah. So the French had colonies all over, right? Mm -hmm. Indochine being one of the colonies. Um, they had colonies in West Africa, North Africa, you know, all the way to martinique and the caribbeans but you know like everywhere um Réunion, like everywhere and they started in i think the mid 1800s maybe earlier um to recruit young men from the colonies to become part of the french military and they they were essentially colonial soldiers um recruited to kind of keep french rule in the colonies, but also helped to expand the colonies. Um, these colonial soldiers were called tirailleurs, um, and there were tirailleurs from everywhere, like tirailleurs senegalese, 
Tiraya, Indochinois, um, everywhere. And the funny thing is that during World War One and World War Two, hundreds of thousands of Tiraya were shipped from Indochine, West Africa, North Africa, everywhere to Europe in defense of France, to defend France. That is crazy ironic. It's crazy. It's crazy. And the irony is that when the kind of the uprising in Vietnam started to happen, right, um, <laughs> in the 40s, they started to send their tirailleur from West Africa, North Africa, and other places to Vietnam to kind of squash that uprising. Um, and, you know, West African soldiers, North African soldiers were in Vietnam for, you know, 10 plus years. And they had relationships, they had children. Um, you know, the French government had set up these R&R places essentially large brothels, you know, like, so there was, there was a lot of intermixing, right? Um, but after the defeat of the French in 1954, um, the French withdrew all their soldiers. And because these women had been connected to these French soldiers, essentially, their children were of mixed heritage. It was very difficult for them to stay as well. Yeah. Right? So they followed their husbands to West Africa or North Africa. And so there's a whole community of Vietnamese people now in their fifth or sixth generation in West Africa. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of like kind of a lot of traumatic stories that come out of that migration, of course, right? It's, it's a very complicated one, even though it's a migration between colonized peoples, right? You know, South by South kind of migrations from, you know, one colony to, to another colony. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of um, difficult difficult situations that arose, um, and so this film kind of works with people in that community to kind of retell their story, um, but you know, working in a speculative manner, meaning we wrote fiction together in order to attempt to fill in the gaps the the kind of erasures that were happening during this 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 um this time in their lives i hope that makes sense yeah it does um, how did you stumble upon this history i mean it's i mean <laughs> you could be reading about it you could be you know experiencing it mm -hmm. through uh, a friend of a friend or directly in your family uh, history how did you come across the story of i because this is the first time i've ever heard of this yeah so it turns out um when i was growing up um we were in oklahoma and dallas i had a lot of cousins come over and they would speak french and they would only speak french and um they were actually living in martinique in the caribbean and you know i was kind of introduced to this kind of this 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 part of history, even though I didn't understand it quite yet, um, at a very young age, um, and it turns out that my uncle, my grandfather's younger brother, was actually recruited um, into the French army as a tirailleur, essentially as a colonial soldier, um, and he was made to fight at Vietnam Phu 
against the against the Vietnamese. And then he was shipped to Algeria during the Algerian Revolution. And then he was shipped to Fort de France, Martinique, Fort de France, which was a, a French colony. And so he was one of the first Vietnamese families in Martinique. And I have a lot of cousins or second cousins that are, you know, half Martinican, half Vietnamese. Um, and I got to, you know, I got a lot of time to speak to my 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 grand uncle. Um, and very interesting history, very interesting history. And so I started kind of becoming really fascinated with this idea of a colonial soldier, you know, and I was kind of obsessed about imagining like the different solidarities that might have happened between like Senegalese, like colonial soldiers and Vietnamese colonial soldiers on the battlefields of Europe. I was just imagining, you know, and then we started to do research and trying to find out if any kind of solidarities happened, um, you know, and then that led me to, you know, this community in, in Senegal, Dakar. Yeah, I'll send you, <laughs> I'll send you a, a viewing link. But if you can make it to New York, that'd be great because it's a four channel video installation. It's very immersive um, and it's very kind of emotional. It's an emotional kind of immersive experience. How, how do we experience something like that if it goes away? Um, you know what I mean? I mean, it's an installation and it's like, if you're not there, you can't experience this sort of way that you're presenting it. Yeah, I know. That's that's one of the things about video installations that's, that's difficult because it requires you to physically be um, in the space, right? It's spatial. It's not just a single channel where you can kind of film and project in a theater um, or, in your, or watch on your screen at home. Um, I don't know how to get over that, <laughs> but um, that, that's one of the difficulties of presenting um, video installation. Yeah. I, I want to go back to this history that we have in our uh, Vietnamese uh, past. You know, as a child growing up in the United States, Vietnamese, Americans, uh, we each, especially men, we we go through this sort of, for me, uh, I went through this emasculation, I feel like, period, through media and feeling uh, very alone and very by myself when it came to trying to figure out my identity. It just felt like a very lonely process at the time because when you're typically the only Asian in, in the class of all African-Americans or all Mexicans or wherever you are in the United States growing up in a very isolated town or whatever, you often think that you are the only one going through that experience. But little do you know, decades before, there are Vietnamese men that are conscripted into these types of armies fighting, basically putting their lives on the line. I mean, it's like almost slavery. And I want sort of like these young people in the world today to know that as a Vietnamese person, we share so much history with trauma and we way before the Vietnam War, you know, these things were occurring and happening in very isolated incidents uh, all over the world and, you know, to our men and to our women all over the history timeline of, of Vietnam. Well, yeah, I way before war, because I think um, we've been 
dealing with colonialism for quite a long time, even before French colonialism, right? We we understand this history, Chinese colonialism and and you know others. <clears throat> um and I think colonialism is 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 that thing that um it not only displaces people physically, right? But it kind of displaces people um psychologically. Right? That that's the colonial project. And you know, that's been happening, you know, with in Vietnam in particular, prior to the French, but the French had a, a had a very big colonial impact on our history, on our psychology, um, on our understanding of ourselves. Um you know, and yeah, it's 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 from that kind of that psychological damage, I think. And people can can feel free to kind of, you know, debate and and to kind of enter into dialogue about this. But <clears throat> it not only sp sp split us, right, in regards to how we think about ourselves and how we think about the European other, right? But it literally split the nation. And there's nothing more traumatic, more disastrous, more catastrophic, more um, unfortunate than a civil war, right? And that's what we have to kind of think and we have to remember that is, is, you know, we come out of that very unfortunate circumstance. Your name everywhere printed is Tuan Andrews Nguyen, right? And I've always wanted to ask you, where did that that middle part come from? And why uh, have you chosen to keep it in your name? Um, I, I don't know the history. I don't know where it comes from. But uh, my name is Kenneth Eugene Nguyen. And I don't, sometimes when I think about it, I feel, you know, a discomfort to it but i was born with that name and so oh, wow. been wondering and now you know mine comes from my sponsor uh patriarch where does your name come from do you mind if i ask were you born in the u.s yeah born in i was born in the united states i was born okay, tom was born in vietnam yeah he was six months old when when my family left and then right. they had me in 1975 in november 1975 in uh out of fort indian town gap in pennsylvania and then okay. we were my dad was like, uh, let's call him after uh, Kenneth, uh, Mr. A uh, Reverend Kenneth Eugene Spangler. And so my wow. dad named me an homage to um, Kenneth Eugene Spangler, Kenneth Eugene Wynn. And uh, I used to have a problem with it. I, I, There's weird points where I was very proud of it because I'm an American born, second generation. I have this cool uh, English name. But, you know, as you go along and you realize the history of all of this stuff, mm -hmm. there's a sh sort of shame to it. And then you fall back into being okay with the history of all of this. And this is the way the world works and yada, yada, yada. And so I'm, I've always been curious about your Andrews uh, and your name. That's interesting. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, names reflect so much, right, in, in, in regards to, they contain so much narrative in, yeah. in people's stories. Um, my name when I was born was Nguyen Tuan Anh. Tuan Anh. Um, 
so when I was kind of growing up in in the U.S., the kids. So in Vietnam, I'd be called Dong An. In the U.S., they call me An because the the last uh... that, that became my first name. So they called me An. Um, my my father's name is Nguyen Phu An, right? A N. Um, so when kids at school called me On, they would just make fun of me. It was silly, but they would call me. You know, they'd be like, "On, don't turn yourself off," and you know, they kind of racialize it sometimes, and it would lead to fights. I fought a lot when I was in elementary school. Wow, <laughs> just getting into fights, um, and. Uh, when we got naturalized, I think I was like eight or nine. Um, we were in Dallas. My parents got their citizenship, so they decided this would be a good chance to change my name, An, to Andrew. Um, just to keep me from getting into fights. Um, and Andrew, um, yeah, I don't know why they liked the name Andrew. They they named this probably after the letter A after my father's name, so my father's name is Anne, like I mentioned. My my name is Andrew. It has his name in it. Um, my brother, my younger brother, his name is Alexander, and my sister, her name is Ashley. So we are all A's. Um, but yeah, that I think that's that's when um, that was that moment where my kind of identity kind of. So I grew up for a long time being called Andrew then. And then, you know, all my high school friends, even when I meet them today, they still call me Andy, which is funny. Wow. Um, but when I got into college, I started to kind of want to kind of revert, you know, revert back to Duong because that that's, you know, Duong, An, Duong Andrew um, was was the original way that. And, and, and is it something that you considered when you were starting out professionally to keep it? Is it a conscious thing that you're like, I, I'm going to keep that Andrew so people recognize that Andrew is me, people that you knew? Or did you ever think like, because I think about this all the time in my name. I'm like, I want to change it all the time. But it's part of who I am, part of historically. And it, it, it feels icky. And I love my sponsor family. They're, they're the best people um, that I still keep in touch with them. But at the same time, it just feels icky, you know, it just feels, and I just have to accept the fact that, you know, this is our history. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's you, right. That's, that's your very specific subjectivity. It's your experience. Um, and, and you can find empowerment in, in that very specific mm. story of yours. Right. I, you know, from right after high school, I, Ask people to start calling me by Tuan. Um, and because Tuan Win is like Kevin Smith in the US, you know, it's the equivalent. Everybody's called the name Bun. Um, and everybody has the last name of Win, or almost everybody. Um and I don't know, I I I thought it would be more convenient to keep Andrew just as another level of distinguish. Yeah. Uh, to distinguish myself from the Don Win, which is very ubiquitous, but you know, there's a lot of people named Don Andrew Win or Andrew Don Win. It's a lot. It's a ton of people, millions of people, hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. Wow, it's amazing to think about it. You know, I um, 
I want to, I have so many more things to ask, but I think the, the important, there's an important thing that, um, that I read up is this Joan Miro award. And, um, I want to read what, what the jury kind of unanimously cited uh, about you. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about it. The ravishing beauty and poetic sensual qualities of his filmic and sculptural projects and the poignant performative expressions that address challenging themes related to history, collective memory, and the impact of colonialism is sort of why they chose you for this uh, award, uh, the Joan Muir Award, which is uh, there's a cash prize. And uh, in 2024, uh, I, I believe you are going to be exhibiting um, what is this award and can you tell us about the context of of why you're you're chosen and and the implications of what it uh, means for your future yeah that just happened recently i'm still kind of in shock um it's a prestigious award i mean joan miro foundation the foundation um started this award um i think in 2007 you're like the eighth are you the eighth year i am the eighth prize so it's i think it was every year they stopped for a little bit during the pandemic um so it's it's a great honor uh it's a great honor for me because the list of previous winners mm -hmm. are like people that i looked up to when i was you know a student in the game wow uh, and the shortlisted um artists that were in my um in my nomination were artists are artists that i highly respect. So I didn't even think I had a chance, actually. Um, hence, I'm, I'm still quite shocked. It, it's a it's a great it's a great prize. Um, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm so completely honored. Every time I think about it, I, be, I become kind of a little bit dumbfounded by the fact that I can, yeah, you're speechless. I, I am speechless. <laughs> like mumbling. Um, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a it's a great honor uh, to receive the Joan Miro Foundation Prize, um, and I get to you know make some new work hopefully, and to exhibit in Spain and Barcelona next year, um, and it you know it does kind of give me a little bit of visibility, a little bit more visibility in the art world. Um, hopefully, that'll lead to more kind of pull in the film world as well. You know, because the the budgets that I'm working on in the art world are super small compared to like film budgets, Ken. Yeah. Um, but the aspiration is to return um, eventually to the to the big screen, and um, and uh, you know do some experimentations there. Um, yeah. Well, I, I you know I was going to end with that question, but the other question, not even the question, but it's more of a statement, is. Uh, your very first film project that they believe is 1446 is that the name <laughs> look at you covering your face i look i enjoyed it i i thought it was a little bit ahead of its time you know probably like a lot of the stuff that you do is a very ahead of your time I, I think it uh i enjoyed it very much and i think from where i sat um at the time made sense because of who we are of of the people that we were when we got to Vietnam. So the lens that you saw this through is the lens that my brother and I and you saw the world through. And that's a, a real representation of what we experienced. But that all being said, I mean, you just literally put up your hands and you're, you're you know, 
this feeling of of sort of um, you know uncomfortable that you you put out something that uh, that perhaps you know <laughs> you're holding your face. I I want to ask you about that very thing. Is we as people and artists we change so often, and when I look listen back to the first ten fifteen podcast episodes, even uh, the first hundred, I cringe at, at, at what I say and what I, even now when I, there's things that I say in, in these modern episodes, I cringe. But how do we accept that we are who we are at the time of when we make these things and then we become different people? I mean, how do we kind of accept that? Do you look back and you go, uh, you regret it? Or how does this all work? Um. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't bring up the film but no it's it's called 1735 I, 1735 i i don't talk about it often people try to find it online um and you know i kind of like do this um yeah. and i throw away the key um but it, it no it was it was a um very enriching experience for sure i was quite traumatized by it because it was in 2004 2005 which is really early early in in the industry um i was just straight out of school 27 28 um working with a very young crew kay nguyen was one of the screenwriters along with Hwang An. um it was galen's first film that he shot we shot up 35, which meant we only had like a one to two shooting ratio, which means which meant I only had two takes per every every shot, which was and my language, my 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 grasp on um you know the language at that time was 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 very different than it is now. Um you know, young actors, first time actors for the most part, it was it was challenging. It was challenging, but I do appreciate um, Tai Nguyen for giving me that opportunity. That that was the only reason I could actually get to Vietnam and live in Vietnam for for that long, for that initial amount of time, because I didn't have money after grad school. Um, I volunteered to be a translator on a on a, a friend uh, on a friend's thesis project. Her name is Mirabel Ang. Um, she was a Singaporean filmmaker studying at CalArts, doing a um, her thesis film on mail order brides from Vietnam to Singapore. And I told her, I'll look, I'll work for you for free. Just get me to Vietnam. <clears throat> I'll translate or do whatever you need. Give me to Vietnam. And in Vietnam, I met Thai. I met Thai and then convinced him um, that I could do this project. Sorry, Thai. We were we were we were drinking and smoking. I I I I showed him a short film that I met I made about a couple who um Lama, they, they, they were butchers, dog meat butchers. I made a very short film about it um, on my previous trip to Vietnam. And I convinced him, I was like, Thai, this is romantic comedy material. <laughs> this is romantic comedy material, um, you know, based in like this dog butchery. And he was like, yeah, okay, I see it. <laughs> and he brought me onto the project, amazingly enough. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I owe a lot to him. Um, but but you think about that, right? You think about like you look back and see this is the thing about people 
who are so I mean I'm I'm speaking for myself really who are we're so hard on ourselves about that first step into the journey of becoming artists or to do that project that's so uncomfortable or whatever in that journey of like a thousand steps these things have to happen and without it i mean it blocks so much of our our pathways because we're just judging ourselves and even you know it's scary that you're even like judging yourself like almost 20 years ago but that had to happen though no right Tom? it had it's, to happen it had, it had to, happen. to happen and it's like those things are so imperfect and so incomplete sometimes but circumstantially they had to sort of set the the the, the stage for you to become the joan miro like recipient today i mean how massive is that compared to you know the the, the first film you ever got to make it, it's i it's a necessary thing that you had to go through and i i get encouraged every time i get to hear a story by an artist who are not so proud of 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 the first thing that they did but i look at it as a trajectory as a organic part of their um their footprint in in humanity yeah yeah no you're right ken and and you know and i acknowledge it um you know, like I said, I appreciate everybody that worked on that film with me. It was my inexperience and my, yeah, it was my inexperience. Um, you know, the film didn't do too well um, at the box office. <laughs> it didn't, um, and I think it could have been, you know, with this, the experience that I have now, it could have yeah. been directed, directed better, it could have been done better, but I was just so young. Um, so inexperienced and so kind of like, you know, fresh, fresh out of school. So um, and and my, you know, area of study was like experimental documentary, yeah. not not like romantic comedy or feature and films. Think, yeah. And uh, but that that has that definitely has fueled my desire to kind of um, since then. And I've held on to this for a long time to kind of return and, and make a, a, a feature film that I, I want to make. Um, and I'm working on that right now. I'm actually trying to find funding for it. Um, so. and, and is it more of a commercial uh, narrative um, or is it still within the art uh, world or is it a combination? It's going to be a combination. Um, I I met this man in Senegal. Maybe I, I'll talk to you about it later, but um, he's got a really amazing story. His name is Bubu Chinois. Um, he was West Africa's like public enemy number one throughout the, I think the 80s, 70s and 80s. But he's a child who was born in Vietnam to a Senegalese father who migrated to, to Africa. And he became the most notorious bank robber in West Africa. He was put in every jail. Um, he escaped every jail that he was put in. Um, they call him Buba because his name is Abubakar. Um, still speaks Vietnamese to me. Um, and they call him Buba Chinois because Chinois, meaning Chinese, they call him Buba the Chinese, but he's actually not Chinese. He's, right. he's Vietnamese. Um, and it's that kind of immigrant story, but it's set in a very unique and particular circumstance. Um, you know, the immigrant, like outlaw immigrant, like stereotype, but it's a very, he has a very touching um, and compelling story. And he's a very passionate person. And would this and, be more of a doc or you would recreate? It's a, it's a, it's a, 
in my mind right now, it's a fiction film. It's kind of like something between like City of God plus like, I don't know. I'm I'm trying to think of a, a like a biopic in my head right now. But um, yeah, set in Dakar in the seventies, man. That's Vietnamese amazing. Vietnamese community in Dakar in the seventies. Yeah, that is a fascinating. God, it just comes to it proves that there's so many things out there that narratively we are still in the dark we we don't know what is um what has happened and uncovering this um and i'm glad that you got to make that first film 20 years ago because now you have the experience of what um what you want to see on on the big screen definitely definitely i've um you know, try to hone the craft a little bit. It's funny because, you know, filmmakers usually they'll get a chance to make one film every few years, maybe. And they really spend a lot of time on like perfecting one work. Whereas like I'm I'm pretty prolific because I, I, I'm in this place where I can make experimental work and I can make it quickly and with very little money. But it's about exploring the ideas first, first and foremost. Right. Um, but I'm looking very, very much looking forward to being able to spend like a lot of time on a project that I hope could have, a, you know, a larger, larger audience with, with larger distribution and a kind of a, a larger impact on the kind of way that the world sees, sees things. I look forward to that uh, project and I, I look forward to the next 30 years of, of your work. I hope I live that long, brother. Oh, you will. You will. I'm sure you will. Thank you so much today for coming on. And, um, you know, I, um, I'm finally relieved that, you know, we got to do this and, you know, I always say that this is a precedence for the next, um, you know, time that you come on, you know, we, we've established a, a landing pad here. And so, you know, the next time you do a film, the next time you do another exhibition or when you're in Spain for the Joan Miro ex exhibition before that we come on we talk about it i probably would want to take my family to 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 europe to see that 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 is a a really uh, amazing thing to experience and spain is one of my favorite countries so um you know i i look forward to it Juan, thank you so much for coming on today thank you ken i think you're doing an amazing work with this uh with this project with this podcast and keep it up and thank you for having me i'm, I'm so honored thank you Tuan. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over.